probably know, um, unless you're uh, new around here, we've been going through a series uh, looking at the minor prophets uh, for a few weeks in the lead up to Christmas. And today we are up to Zephaniah. So a few weeks ago I spoke on Micah, we've had Hosea, we've had Amos. Amos. Um, and I, did I say Micah? Yeah. And here today we're on Zephaniah. So a little bit of a background as to the timing of Zephaniah and uh, who was king, etc. Uh, then we're going to look at, uh, quite briefly really, what was the accusation of the people, what would the consequences be of their failure to repent and their, uh, their sin and their, what they were being accused of, what's the heart of God for his people in it all. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about purification and restoration, just to give you a bit of a heads up as to where we're heading. Um, and I want us to spend a few minutes really looking at the work of the cross, looking at the, um, the, the way in which God brings purification to his people through the work of the cross. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews 9. So we're going to probably spend more time in Hebrews than we are in Zephaniah, actually, today. Um, but there we go. So Zephaniah, was, uh, he was around at the time of King Josiah, uh, which was 640 to 609 BC. Now, King Josiah was known as being a good king, someone who was stood up for righteousness, someone who uh, was really for the rebuilding of the temple, for the restoration of righteousness in the land, and it spoke that he did things that were pleasing in God's sight. Uh, something that might take you a little bit by surprise if I read uh, the introduction to who Josiah was. Um, just because you might think, righteous king, I don't know what you're thinking of some, maybe somebody who looks a bit like Graham, very wise and, you know, grey beard and, you know, well anyway, here we go. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adadiah um, from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away. I've got a popping in my ear. Uh, he did not turn away from doing what was right. So that was the, the who was king when Zephaniah was bringing this prophetic word to the people. Uh, which doesn't just apply to the people of Israel. There's also some wider context to the surrounding nations and some uh, distant lands as well, such as Ethiopia. So we'll have a quick look at what the accusations were. Um, we won't go into detail. Some of them were very similar, actually, to when we looked at Micah a few weeks ago. Similar kind of accusations of the people. Uh, they worshipped the moon and stars. They participated in pagan ceremonies. There was violence. There was deceit. Defilement. Prophets seeking after their own gain. Arrogance and lies. Which is, you know, standard fodder, isn't it? When people are slipping away from the life that God wants them to live. And reality was the people were living far from God's ways. And when we turn our back on God, when we think we can do things our own way, all of these sorts of symptoms begin to show themselves. Selfishness, selfish ambition, immorality, defilement, um, and all of that stuff. So that was going on within the people of Israel. And then in chapter 2, 
There's the accusation that goes out much more widely, so to Philistia, to the Philistines, to Moab, to Ammon, to Ethiopia, Assyria, and accusing them of pride, of thinking that they're self-sufficient, accusing them of mocking God's people, accusing them of being uncorrectable. Uh, So that's the general accusation in in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3, it says, Gather together, yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. A call to repentance to God's people. And that's a theme that we'll come to um, as we get to the book of Hebrews, this concept that God was wanting people to come into repentance, to live his way. But we see throughout the whole of Old Testament history, the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs, times when people were doing things God's way and huge periods of time when they weren't and things were going badly wrong. And God says a bit further on uh, in chapter two, that the consequences of what the people's sin would be. And they're kind of the usual suspects, uh, what God tends to do to bring his people back in the Old Testament. So destruction, invasion of their land, uh, being plundered by other nations. He even spoke of uh, stinging nettles. I don't know if you've had much experience of stinging nettles or if you've ever met someone who was from a country where nettles don't exist and they look at it and go, oh, what a pretty flower. Ow, I shouldn't have done that. Um, I remember once on a geography school trip, we'd gone to Yorkshire to a place called Malham Tarn. And in the morning we were doing some things on this stone, limestone pavement or something I don't don't really know can't remember much about it I did get quite good grades in geography but um don't remember much about that day but what I remember is the afternoon we had to go off in groups to different places in the hills and we were at this little river and we had to go into the river and check the temperature and you know check the water quality and various different things and in there I'd stubbed my toe and I didn't really um paying much attention to it because the water was quite cold 13 degrees actually because we did have thermometer uh, so that my feet were quite cold I didn't really pay much attention to what was going on until we got out and uh, as I was walking along the, the foot started to really hurt and I'd actually taken the skin off the bottom of three of my toes on my right foot so there was blood all pouring out so some of my pupil friends ran up to a farmhouse the top of the hill and came back with a toilet roll and I'm standing there on one leg trying to douse this really now throbbing foot to try and mop up some of the blood that was coming out the bottom of it and as I'm doing that I overbalanced and fell backwards into a whole bush of nettles and was nettled all up this arm all up this arm all down this leg and all down this leg and hobbled back to the coach at the end of the day in misery and agony um, and maybe that's something of what the people of Israel were in for when you're going to have stinging nettles you're going to feel miserable but this idea um, that God was going to 
in essence, bring correction and punishment to his people. And things were not going to go well for them because of their persistence in disobedience and their unwillingness to repent. Notice that from the that verses I just read, that the option was there, the opportunity was there, the invitation was there to repent and come back into relationship. But what we see throughout the whole of the Old Testament, this continuous ebb and flow, ebb and flow, where they get drawn back into relationship with God because they don't really have any other option. And then when life gets comfortable, then when things begin to go right, they stray away again. And so here is the consequences of their actions. He said, what sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime. No one can tell it anything. It refuses all correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring liars, uh, lions, sorry, hunting their victims. Its judges are like ravenous wolves at eating time, who by dawn have left no trace of their prey. Its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. But the Lord is still there in the city and he does no wrong. Day by day he hands down justice and he does not fail. But the wicked know no shame. I have wiped out many nations, devastating their fortress walls and towers. Their streets are now deserted. Their cities lie in silent ruin. There are no survivors, none at all. I thought, surely they will have reverence for me now. Surely they will listen to my warnings. Then I won't need to strike again, destroying their homes. But no, they get up early to continue their evil deeds. Therefore be patient, says the Lord. Soon I will stand and accuse these evil nations. For I've decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured, devoured by the fire of my jealousy. I want us to think for a couple of minutes about a system, a pattern that existed all throughout the Old Testament of a God of love who desires relationship with his people. Who, who desires to purify his people, who desires to restore them, who desires to walk with them like with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, to enjoy fellowship with his people, and then have a people who are rebellious and who turn their back on him, who ignore him, who forget to put him first in their choices and in their relationships, who don't listen to him and the way that he is asking them to live. God's heart for his people is not stinging nettles. That's not his desire. That wasn't his desire in this book. And you see that from chapter two, the verses you read, come back to me. There was an opportunity to repent before the consequences of their sin began to unravel upon them. God's desire is purification and restoration. And what we see, um, which we'll, we'll come to in a couple of minutes where we look at Hebrews, uh, the, the difference between the opportunity that existed in the Old Testament for people to be purified and brought back into relationship with God 
and the reason why that led to ups and downs and ins and outs. And the opportunity that we have because of Christ to be purified, to be made right with God and to be in relationship with him. In the Old Testament, there was a desire. In fact, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the rest of Zephaniah chapter 3. So this, you've had this, this book all the way through the first two chapters and then the first half of chapter 3 is pretty dire. Pretty scary and pretty negative. You think, oh gosh, this is a bit worrying, isn't it? And then listen to this. Then... I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. My scattered people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings. On that day, you will no longer need to be ashamed, for you will no longer be rebels against me. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Those who are left will be lowly and humble, for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. At last your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. <coughs> On that day the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, O Zion. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty saviour. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles. Wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth, and I will restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken. The total transformation in the tone of this book, the switch that turns horror and disaster and destruction and punishment and all of that into restoration and a name of distinction and restored fortunes and peace and joy and singing with joyful songs and delight. All of it comes about through the purification of God's people. That is the only sticking point that prevents people from being in fullness of relationship with a father who loves them the only thing that is in our way of pure and 
uninterrupted relationship with God is our purification because he is holy, he is pure, and we are not. In the Old Testament, you'd read the book of Leviticus, there's lots of stuff in there about purification, some stuff in Exodus as well. The rules and regulations that led to God's people being able to be in relationship with a holy, pure God when they are human and fallen and had the propensity to do stupid things. We see in Isaiah when he met with the Lord in God's temple and the angel came and it says it touched the coal to my lips and said your guilt is gone. David in Psalm 51 after he'd had this um, debacle with Bathsheba and all that followed on from that and he's coming before God in repentance and he says Lord create in me a pure heart there's there's a desire throughout the old testament and a mechanism by which god's people could be made pure in god's sight but it was imperfect and that was what led to chapter after chapter and book after book of success and failure success and failure of of being drawn near and then having punishment because they've walked away Do you get the pattern in the Old Testament? We see it again and again and again of God's people in rebellion, God's people far away from him and needing to be brought back and that being brought about through punishment, through war, through famine, through pestilence, through being plundered by other nations, by occupation, all of those consequences. And so now I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to actually read the whole chapter in two parts. Because I think it's really important that we get our minds around the concept of purification. Because actually purification is really what the book of Zephaniah is about. So we're going to read the first part of this chapter is around the Old Testament. So this was the mechanism through which the people of Israel in the book of Zephaniah were living under in terms of their ability, their opportunity (coughs) for purification and therefore access to relationship with God. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff, that sprouted leaves and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover but the place, at uh, the place of atonement. But we can't explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room, which is the holy place, as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. 
And he always offered the blood of his own, for his own sins and for the sins the people committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. Does that make sense? General Joe Public could not have access into the holy, most holy place, the presence of God where his glory dwelt. They could not have access under that tabernacle system. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So the system that the people of Zephaniah were living under was a system which was a technically where they were able to be cleansed physically, if you like, um, from their sins by a physical ceremony where bulls and things were offered and the priests went into the most holy place and offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. But what is really, really important for us to get a hold of is this in verse 10. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies. Oh, wait, wait a minute, just before that. The priests, what the priests were offering was not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. Let's get a hold of that. What, what the Old Testament regulations were about were predominantly external they were about behaviour and they were about the cleansing of God's people ceremonially. Not really about God being on the inside of people. Not really about God being able to cleanse the mind, to transform the way that people think, to actually change them from the heart so that they could live differently. And this is where we get to a different system that is so much better. So let's have a look at verse 11. So Christ now has become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood and goats of, of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could be cleansed the people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds, so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised for them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Not just our bodies, not just 
the external, but our minds, our consciences, cleansed by the finished work of Christ on the cross. What Jesus has done has completely changed everything. And you look at that verse of Zephaniah chapter 3, I think it's verse 9, which talks about a time, which starts from verse 9 and goes for the rest of that chapter, speaking about restoration, speaking about cleansing and purification. It speaks about a saviour. It speaks about people coming from the east to worship. There's no question really in my mind that, the, that Zephaniah chapter 3 is pointing to Christ, pointing to the Messiah, to the Saviour, who would once and for all deal with the problem of impurity, deal with the one thing that was preventing people from being in uninterrupted relationship with God. You see, God, his ultimate aim for people is that we are living in relationship with him. And we see it again and again and again in these prophetic books, people being away from God, people straying from him, people being in rebellion, people being in sin, people messing up. And that messing up, preventing them from being in relationship with God, which was the reason why we were created. Zephaniah is pointing to a time, a time when we now live, when we don't have to live distanced from God, where we don't have to have a priest go into a room once a year and offer sacrifices of blood on our behalf so that we can be cleansed from our sins. We have a high priest who has gone into the holy place, the most holy place, once for all time to offer sacrifice for our sin but that can also cleanse our minds and our thinking, can, can cleanse our attitudes, can cleanse us on the inside, not just pay penalty for our behaviour. So for us today, what about you and me and where are we at in our walk with God? If I was to say to you, you know, on a scale of, I mean, this is, this is a, a hypothetical scale. I don't think there is a real scale. But if I was to say to you, on a scale of one to ten, you know, one being like totally distant from God and ten being like, oh my gosh, I'm just filled with God's glory all the time. How would you place yourself on that continuum? What are the things that prevent you from being in that fullness of relationship with God? The ultimate question in that really is, are you in Christ? Have you accepted what Jesus did for you and, and his, his sacrifice that means that you can have full access into God's presence all the time? That can deal with the sin issue, that can deal with the impurity issue permanently in your life and my life. And if maybe you are in Christ, but you've, <coughs> you've allowed stuff to get in the way of your relationship with him. Maybe stuff 
in your conscience that you're carrying, that you feel a sense of shame or guilt about. Maybe you feel like you've messed up and you feel like you can't really come into God's presence. 1 John 4 verse 9 says this. No, 1 John 1. If we, well, it's just starting verse 8. If we claim that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. We have the opportunity for God's cleansing that is far way over and above what the people of Zephaniah ever had access to. We have a high priest who wants to be in conversation with us, who wants to cleanse the way and transform the way that we think, to wash away all the stuff that keeps us from fullness of relationship with him. Last verse. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Can we stand together? It's almost like a seesaw, really. But the majority of the book is on one side of the seesaw and then the last few verses is on the other. But that seems to be heavier than the other side, if that makes sense. All of the iniquity and the sin of God's people and the consequences of it. And we reach this point in chapter 3, verse 9, which speaks about a saviour who will come, who will cleanse, who will purify and totally changes the fortunes of God's people. And Jesus, we stand here this morning as beneficiaries of what you have done, Lord Jesus, of the power of your cleansing blood, the freedom of the cross. And we bring to you, Lord, our stuff, that passage 1 John 1 9 you know if we think that we've no sin we're deceiving ourselves and we bring to you Lord our lives our minds our attitudes our behavior and we want to confess those things to you today Lord because we know that you can bring cleansing you can bring forgiveness. You can 
even the very worst thing that we have ever done, you can bring forgiveness and cleansing and you can lift off shame from your people. And we just thank you that we have full access into that passage from Hebrews talking about the second room, the most holy place where you and your glory dwell. We have access there because of what Jesus has done. And we pray, God, that we would, we would walk in the fullness of what that sacrifice means for us. That we would not hide away in the shadows on the outside. We would not cower away in shame when we have fullness of access into your presence because of Christ. Would you purify us? Would you cleanse us? Cleanse our minds and our consciences, Lord. Where we've let things into our thinking, would you purify so that we can walk in moment by moment relationship with you? Purify my heart, let me be as gold. And precious silver, purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire. Is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master. Ready to do your will. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from within. And make me holy. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from Do your 